Well, welcome this morning. If you are visiting for the first time from, say, VBS, your kids were in VBS, or if you're here for the civic holiday, uh, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you here. At Cole, we study our way through the books of, of Scripture, and so the mood this morning fits the passage that we're studying. You saw that we're all dressed in black this morning because we're mourning the death of Jesus today. That's where we are in, in the Scriptures. We're at the end of, of Mark Last week we read Jesus' crucifixion and death, and today we read his burial. So this morning won't be a celebration of American independence. Instead, we are celebrating our liberation from sin and death, one in the greatest victory humanity has ever experienced, Jesus' death on a cross, and next week we'll look at his resurrection from the dead. So welcome to this week's celebration of humanity's independence weekend. Again, today we are looking at God, dead and buried. We got a new dog over the last uh, month and a half. There he is. When we got a dog because our girls were so terrified of dogs. That's what finally convinced me at least. Especially Lydia that you see in the picture there. She was horrified. A dog would be across the street and she'd run in screaming. And so we were kind of like, we got to do something about this. So we decided that in order to uh, help our kids overcome their fear, we are going to face our fear and walk right into it. So we got the most ferocious dog that we could find. (laughs) Yeah, a, a mini poodle is clearly the most ferocious animal. We decided to name him Jamie. And we named him Jamie after one of my current favorite living theologians. There's, you know, a favorite list of living theologians and a favorite list of dead theologians. And so Jamie Smith, James K.A. Smith, as he's, you know, more, you know, uh, professionally known, but he goes by Jamie. This is one of his books. Jamie Smith is a thinker that helps us think through the world that we live in and how to engage it as Christians. And this book that I want to read a quote for you this morning is called How Not to Be Secular. It's a very interesting title and it's a very interesting book. I recommend it to you. In this book, Jamie Smith talks about how uh, Nietzsche has announced the death of God 150 years ago and now we're living in the reality that most people, most of the world, understands that God is dead. He has died and now much of our culture lives as though that's true. Which leads, of course, to toxic fear and crushing anxiety. If God is dead, then we have to create meaning for ourselves, which some people kind of enjoy, but most people find that uh, crushing and, and uh, toxic. And if we have to create meaning for ourselves, that means my meaning and my purpose in life might be very different from somebody else's, and those might be in conflict a lot of the time. And so we see that our culture is uh, in the midst of fear and conflict quote from the book, Jamie Smith is quoting another author, Julian Barnes, on his fear of death. Listen to this. Only a couple of nights ago, so this is Julian Barnes writing, there came again that alarmed and alarming moment of being pitchforked back into consciousness, awake, alone, utterly alone, beating pillow with fists, shouting, oh no, oh no, oh no, in an endless wail. The horror of the moment, the minutes, overwhelming what might, to an objective witness, appear a shocking display of self-exhibitionist pity. An inarticulate one, too, 
For what sometimes shames me is the extraordinary lack of descriptive or responsive words that come out of my mouth. For God's sake, you're a writer, I say to myself. You do words. Can't you improve on that? Can't you face down death? And here's the money quote. Can't you face down death? Well, you won't ever face it down, but can't you at least protest against it? More interestingly than this. Can't you face down death more interestingly than this? Well, you can't ever face it down, but at least protest. Other, other places, uh, Julian Barnes says, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. Which is interesting. Again, our culture is fear of this fear, full of this fear of death, of meaninglessness, of our values wasting away, of our, of our ways of life disappearing. We're afraid of a lot of stuff. And our anxiety keeps going up because in a world where God is dead, all we're left with is ourselves and anxiety. Our passage today centers on the reality of Jesus' death. He really died. We are living in a world in which the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, very God of very God, has entered into death. And so today we face the consequences of that. Today we will look at the fact that God has died and the implications of that. Pray with me. Father, we praise you for your love and grace and power and goodness. You showed your care for us by sending your son to die on a cross in order to reveal your heart for the world. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us. And we praise you as a generous, loving, gracious Lord. Holy Spirit, we praise you for your work in us. We ask, Father, that you would use this morning to continue to form us into a people who looks like Jesus, your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Make us more gracious and loving and empower us to take up our crosses and follow Christ, to die to ourselves that we might experience eternal life, to give up the world so that you might save us body and soul. We love you. Amen. Again, this morning, we're coming to the end of Mark. And through Mark, throughout the book, we've, we've watched as Jesus has faced the kingdoms of the world. The kingdom of God has invaded the world. Jesus has faced those kingdoms. And the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God have been in conflict for 15 chapters at this point. And last week... We saw the kingdoms of the world defeat Jesus. Jesus is crucified. The world has defeated heaven. Humanity has overcome God. Sin has triumphed over righteousness. Selfishness over love. Power over humility. Death over life. Jesus' followers are scattered. The temple leadership is satisfied. The Roman machine rolls on and Jesus is dead. Mark goes out of his way in this passage to show Jesus is really and truly dead. The drama of the, of the crucifixion is now very simple phrases and just a clear description. This is what happened. Jesus is dead. I, I want to note three, three ways in which Mark points out Jesus is really dead. First, the women. We see these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and of Sal and Salome. 
Mary Magdalene, we know from other stories. Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, it's not actually clear who this is. I want to suggest, based on Mark chapter 3, verse 6, that this is actually Jesus' mother, Mary, um, but that's not totally clear for sure. Uh, there in Mark chapter 3, um, Mary is listed along with five brothers of Jesus, two of whom are James and Joseph. So uh, that's at least a possibility. Um, and then Salome, we think, is uh, the mother of James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee. But these women have been with Jesus from Galilee, way up in the north in Galilee. They followed him down to Jerusalem. They watched his crucifixion. They watched uh, now his burial here. And then in, in next week, they're going to be the first witnesses to the resurrection. These women are witnesses all the way through. And, and Mark makes it very clear, I think, that they saw everything. Mark notices that these women are witnesses to the death and burial of Jesus. Which does a couple of things for us. One, it says that Mark knows that women are very important to Jesus. That's significant. Women weren't always important. Um, But here we know that these women in particular, but women in general, were very important to Jesus' ministry. Jesus finds these women precious and special. Also, the women are the witnesses. Notice it's not the disciples. It's not the men. The women are the witnesses to what happens here. Mark didn't witness this, we don't think. He don't, we don't think he witnessed the crucifixion or the burial. He knows this information because these women told him what happened. The women are describing the story for us. What we have of this story comes from these women. That's significant. That suggests something, right? That this kingdom is upside down. We've been saying this all along through the, through the book of Mark. This is not a kingdoms of this world kind of kingdom. This is an upside down kind of kingdom to the ways of the world. Um, Jesus values women, children, as we, as we saw this morning, babies. Jesus values the poor, the lost, the weak. He goes to death in order to win great victories, right? This is a very upside down kind of kingdom. This is not Rome. This is the kingdom of God. So again, we have witnesses who can confirm that Jesus actually died. That's one of the ways that Mark notes that Jesus really died. Second, Pilate is confused. When Joseph comes and asks Pilate for the body, Pilate's confused because he's like, this is too quick a death. Normally, crucifixion can take days. It's a horrifying way to die. So Pilate is confused and and says, well, tell me, let me ask my centurion. He knows about death. Um, if there were, there were lots of people in the ancient world who knew about death, but centurions, you could call them death experts. They knew about death in war, and they knew about death in execution. They would know when a person was dead. You could almost say, that, again, death experts or medical examiners. So Pilate gets the medical examiner's opinion. Is this guy really dead? It's, this is all important to the story, partly because... The Jews needed the bodies down before sundown. That was normal practice. A dead body shouldn't hang on the cross overnight. Even your enemies you would bury in the Jewish culture if they died. And it had to be done quickly because the Sabbath is coming uh, the next day. So um, at nightfall, it's now Sabbath. And so Joseph has to get this body down and buried quickly. So he runs to Pilate. 
Pilate says, well, I'm confused that this guy's dead. So remember, in, in the other Gospels, we see that Pilate actually sends the soldiers to break the legs of the other um, men on the cross because they have to get them dead and buried before sundown. They can't have them hanging on the cross on the Sabbath. So Pilate asks, asks, are you sure he's dead? So we know from the other Gospels, especially John, that they went and broke the legs of the other two men hanging on the cross. And when they came to Jesus, they, they looked and said, well, he kind of looks like he's already dead. Let's make sure. So they stab him with a spear and out comes blood and water. So we know that he really was dead because the blood and water confirm that. Blood and water, medical um, thinkers from the last hundred years or so have been working out what this meant, that blood and water came out. There's a few possibilities. One of them that is interesting theologically, and we can't confirm or deny (laughs) medically, um, is that when blood and water come out, it's an indication that Jesus' heart, from the exhaustion, from the emotional trauma, from the torture that he experienced, Jesus' heart literally exploded. His heart literally burst. And the blood was congealing and the water was um, separating from the blood. That's a horrifying picture of what Jesus went through. But it would explain how he died so quickly. Um, So it's at least one of the possibilities. Watching that, remember, the centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. This centurion, who Pilate calls to him, Again, a death expert. He knows what death looks like. He knows what crucifixion should look like. And he, when he watches Jesus die, says, Surely this man is the Son of God. He watched that crucifixion, and then he comes to Pilate and says, Yes, actually, he's dead. We know he is dead. This guy is not alive. So we have the witnesses of the women, and we have the death expert from Pilate, a Roman army death expert. That's a lot of testimony that Jesus is really and truly dead. Third, Joseph took him down and buried him in a tomb. This is a normal burial. This is also part of the indication that Jesus really is dead. Joseph buried Jesus in all the proper ways. He had to take the body down before sundown because Sabbath was coming. So there was... Because Sabbath was coming and you had to take the body down, there was a common grave where they would have taken the other two criminals and laid them in the tomb or in a common grave, just a open, not open, but a, a, a pit that they would have laid the bodies in, which is where Jesus should have gone also. That's where he would have been expected to go. But Joseph, in an act of great generosity, decides to take his body and lay Jesus in his own tomb, a new tomb. From the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, we know that the tomb was in the garden, so very close to where the crucifixion took place. uh, And no one had ever been laid there before. It was a brand new tomb. It might have looked something like uh, the next slide. Something like this. This is the garden tomb in Israel. I just got back from Israel a couple weeks ago. had a great time. Something like that. This is one of the two main sites where Jesus may have actually been buried. One of the two main places that people think he was possibly buried. So the tomb from the outside would have looked something like this. There's a big hole and then a hole where the smell and the light could smell could get out and light could get through. And just to note, uh, it was a great pleasure when we were there in Israel just a couple weeks ago. 
we walked into the garden tomb and we run into who else but Alan Matamoros. Um, great gift of the Lord to be able to see him there in, in Jerusalem, in Israel. And it's a, a great pleasure to have you here and with your family. And um, God bless you guys as you're here and then off to Costa Rica. A great pleasure to have you. So and it was a real joy. I will always, because of that moment and a, a few other things, I will always think that this is actually the place where Jesus was buried. <laughs> Archaeology, whatever. Um, we saw Alan there, so. Um, this is the tomb of a wealthy man. Jesus was not a wealthy man, as we know. He most likely would have been buried in a common tomb, except for Joseph's generosity. Can we look at the next slide? So on the left there, you see this is, again, potentially, and I will believe, the bed in which Jesus' body was laid, potentially laid. It was a, a stone tomb, a, a carved room, and then there were two beds on which the bodies could be laid, and they would have laid, wrapped Jesus in the linen cloth and laid him out uh, on this bed, potentially. Um, and then this is the way tombs worked is you would lay the body out for about a year, and after about a year, you would collect the bones and put them in these boxes. And so you could always keep, these in these ossuary boxes, you could keep the bones of your loved ones in the tomb. So there was the, tomb, there was the room where the bodies would be laid, and then there was the room where the ossuary boxes would be displayed. And so um, here you have a whole bunch of ossuary boxes that would have contained the bones of loved, beloved people. So you could use this side over and over again for your family, you would lay the bodies out and then uh, collect the bones, put them in the boxes, and then you could lay someone else in the same bed. Scripture tells us no one had been laid in this tomb before. It was a new tomb. We actually have a picture of Jesus being laid in the tomb, an ancient, slot, an ancient picture of what Jesus actually looked like, and that's the next one. That's not quite right. Okay, maybe not. This is Rod in Israel, uh, in the horse's feeding troughs at Megiddo. Instead, this is actually more what, like what Jesus would have been laid in at his birth. He was wrapped in cloths and laid in a stone manger as a brand new infant. And his dead body was wrapped in cloths and laid in a stone bed when he died. He lived a poor life, died a criminal's death, and was buried thanks to the generosity of a rich member of the council that had just condemned him to death. Mark notes that the tomb was sealed with a stone. Next slide. Something like this. You can kind of see it there in the shadows. Big stone. And on, in front of the tomb, there's actually a, a, um, a pathway that you can roll the stone through. So you can roll the stone away and you can roll it back. So something like this stone sealed the tomb. All of this is meant to indicate to us the finality of Jesus' death. He really was dead. The tomb was sealed. His life, again, had come full circle. And he is really and truly dead. He was beaten, whipped, crucified, which led to suffocation and various forms of dehydration. His heart was ravaged by emotion, torture, and crucifixion until it finally stopped or exploded he was stabbed and confirmed dead. Jesus was dead. At this point, I want to ask the question, why death? Why did God do it this way? Couldn't, have God, couldn't God have found some other way 
uh, various Christians have come up with various answers to explain that God really couldn't die or that Jesus didn't actually die. His spirit was hovering above him or something like that. But in, in Christian theology, God had to do it this way for a variety of reasons. I want to look at two of them. One, it's really important that Jesus experiences all of human life. He experienced all of it, including death. The, the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Gregory of Nazianzus, talk about this. If Jesus, anything that Jesus didn't really experience or take up is not redeemed. God had to experience all of it. He experienced the womb. He experienced birth. He experienced boyhood, manhood, all the way to death. He experienced all of human life so that all of it is redeemed. Whatever he took up, he redeemed. Gregory of Nazianzus puts this very well in a a formula that has um, been very impactful for the church. He says, That which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. If only half of Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may also be half. If only half of me was fallen, then only half of me needed to be saved. In other words. But if the whole of his nature, and if you're like me, then you know, then the whole of my nature needs to be redeemed. If the whole of his nature fell... It must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten and so be saved as a whole. All of human life needs to be saved. Jesus needs to experience all of it to save and redeem all of it. He took on all of it, all the way to the most crushing death you can experience, among the most crushing deaths that a a human has ever experienced. All of human life, even death, can be healed and redeemed in the person of Christ. Nothing is beyond Christ. No suffering is beyond what he has uh, suffered. Nothing that you can experience is beyond Jesus' grasp or his reach. Nothing that you have witnessed, nothing that you have done, he can heal and redeem All of it. And on the cross and at his death, he does. He redeems and heals all of it. He walked up to his darkest fears and faced them down and took them into himself. Like our girls facing the horror of a new puppy. In Christ, we also have walked into death and faced our deepest and darkest fear, death and meaninglessness. And in him, he has redeemed and healed us. Praise God, he has redeemed and healed all of you and all of me, up to and including our deaths. Remember Julian Barnes and his intense fear of death. Can you face down death? Well, you'll never face it down, he says. But at least can't you protest it more interestingly than this. Christ has faced down death. He walked right into it. And if we have been baptized into his death, then we also have faced it down with him. There is no need to protest against death because death 
is no longer an enemy. It's a defeated enemy. Christ has saved and healed us in death. And that's the second point. The second reason Christ had to go all the way to death. Because in death, he defeats death. How does that happen? Well, again, Christ enters death, but Christ is still God. God himself has died. God, who is the maker, creator, and life itself, enters death, which is the ultimate nothing. God makes everything. He enters death, which is nothing. What's going to win? Life will defeat death every time. Just like if you go into a black, dark room, just like we just experienced. The light of Christ comes into a dark room and light eliminates darkness. Life overcomes and defeats death. It's like we've seen throughout the book of Mark. Every time Jesus touches someone that, that, shouldn't, that is unclean, it should make him unclean. But what happens instead? Jesus heals them and makes them clean. Just in the same way, Jesus walks into death and he undoes death. He makes death life. Jesus has entered and defeated death. Death is now a defeated enemy. It's a servant of God. Death isn't something that we fear in the same way that our culture fears death and meaninglessness. Death can still be scary, of course. Death is, in fact, the worst that anyone can do to us. But if that's the worst and God has defeated that, what can man do to me? The deaths of God and his servants are no longer enemies to God. They are weapons. The death of the apostles was a, were weapons that served to destroy the kingdoms of this world, to defeat Satan. The death of Jesus is a weapon that God uses to overcome sin and evil and death. Because Jesus has defeated death, in him we have also experienced and defeated death. If our lives are found in him, then we have stared down death and entered it and emerged as victors over it. If we have been baptized into Christ, then we have died with him, been buried with him, and been raised to new life with him. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 3, sorry, chapter 6, verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore with him, by baptism, into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have been buried with him in baptism and raised up to new life in him. Amen. So again, Jesus has defeated death. He has taken on all of human life and redeemed all of it, all the way to death. And then he has defeated death by just walking into it. He is God. He is life. And when life enters death, life wins. So what does it mean for us to be disciples of this Christ? Our God who has died. He really died. There are a few examples here in the passage that I want to look at of what discipleship can look like. And I want to start 
with a group of disciples um, that are not mentioned in the passage. They're conspicuous by their absence. And that is the disciples, the apostles, the 11 now. Judas has hung himself at this point. They are nowhere to be found in this passage. They're not at the crucifixion. They're not at his death. They're not at his burial. They are not listed here by Mark. The disciples are still living in fear. Jesus was arrested and they run in fear. They're stuck in fear. They're entrapped and overcome by their fear, both of death. What if they come after me? And then of meaninglessness. We just spent three years with this guy and now he's gone. Like, what does this mean for my life? What am I going to do with those three years? I can't get him back. The disciples are stuck in fear, but I want you to note something really significant. They're not here. They're missing, but God will still use them. By the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, these disciples become world beaters. They become kingdom overthrowers. In the new covenant, it's not what we've done or what we've left undone. It's about God's spirit working in and through us to shape the world. Uh, my um, uh, qualifications as a pastor is not because I'm educated or good looking or um, have beautiful children. My qualification as a pastor is that I have suffered. I know my sin and God's spirit works through me. That's the same for all of us. We are all ministers of the gospel, not because of what we've done or what we failed to do as the disciples so massively fail right here. Our qualification is God's spirit working through us. The same spirit that raises Jesus from the dead works through us and work through these disciples. Think with me about what they accomplish after this point. The disciples went on to face persecution and death. The Sanhedrin, the same group that, that um, condemns Jesus to death, uh, will, these guys will face those guys. And here, they're terrified of the Sanhedrin. But then, when they face the Sanhedrin, what do they say? They said, do what you want to me. I don't care. I have to proclaim what God has done for me, what I have seen with my eyes. I cannot stop proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. They're terrified. And a couple weeks later, they're proclaiming, hey, do what you want. Kill me. It doesn't matter. Again, they're terrified of death. And 10 of the 11 remaining disciples will go on to be martyred by the Romans. 10 of 11. The, the 11th, John, faced exile, persecution, beatings, imprisonment. All of them walked right up to death and said, look, it doesn't matter. I'm no longer afraid of death because of what Jesus has done. His life in me, the, the spirit in me doesn't matter. You can do what you want to me. Death is no longer an enemy. It's now a weapon to be used by God to defeat the Roman Empire. Again, they, they will go on the the ministry that they found, the church that starts with these 11 guys, will go on. It's still going. The Roman Empire has been gone for 1,500 years. The temple establishment will be gone in a generation from these guys. The people that condemned and put Jesus to death, gone. They're only remembered because we remember them. The disciples and their ministry goes on. 
Imagine the work of the Spirit that happened in their lives to go from terrified and running away to do what you want to me. By God's Spirit, Lord, please do the same thing in us. Again, these disciples faced persecution and death. But by the coming of the Spirit, God changed them into courageous servants who faced death. Second group I want to look at. So those are the disciples. The women. They walked with Jesus up north in Galilee. They served his ministry. They were a really significant group. They witnessed his crucifixion and death. They witnessed his burial. And they, as we know, are the very first witnesses to the resurrection. They are really important to Mark and his narrative. Mark does say, I want to note this, that they watch from a distance. They're not participants in the burial. They don't help Jesus come down from the cross. At least there's no indication of that in Mark. But they are witnesses. Again, Mark gets his information from these women. Women are full participants in the kingdom of God. There is no Jew or Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, All of us are full participants in God's kingdom. These women were special and precious to Jesus. And as we know, women are not second class in Christ's kingdom. Children are welcome. The poor and the humble are greater than kings. Death is the way to life. The Messiah suffers. God calls the weak and the foolish in order to shame the strong. It's this consistent upside down kind of kingdom. Women are full citizens. That's not true in the kingdom of Rome or in the Jewish uh, nation. So we who are, you who are women, we who are children, servants, underprivileged, outcasts, refugees, we are precious to Jesus. You are precious to Jesus. Don't ever let anyone make you feel like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Your witness matters. The women here, their witness matters to what happens in the, in the kingdom. We've gotten to see lots of witnesses around the church this week uh, as VBS has been taken over the building. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to watch uh, many of you come and serve the children here and witness to what you've seen God do and witness the story of, of, um, uh, of God impact children's lives. Kids from all kinds of different backgrounds heard the gospel this week because of you. Coal kids, unchurched kids, refugee kids from Muslim households. God showed up in power this week because you showed up as witnesses. Sometimes we don't have enough to be kingdom beaters. Sometimes all we have is our witness. And that witness by the power of God is impactful. It changes lives when we witness what God has done in us and in the scriptures and in other people's lives. When we bear witness, when we bear testimony, that impacts people. So I encourage you to continue impacting people by bearing witness. May God continue to bless us as a witnessing community. Third person I want to look at here is Joseph. Again, Joseph is a wealthy member of of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council that just condemned Jesus. The Gospels say he was probably with them and disagreed with the decision to condemn Jesus. They also say he was a secret and silent follower of Jesus until this moment. He was secret and silent, and all of a sudden, he comes out publicly. 
Mark tells us this phrase is really interesting. Mark says, Joseph was seeking after the kingdom of God. Can there be any better description of a disciple? Someone who's seeking after the kingdom of God. The Sanhedrin were seeking after their own kingdom, their own power. They wanted to maintain their own power. Joseph was part of the Sanhedrin. But he says, I am seeking after the kingdom of God. I recognize that I'm a part of this system for now, but I'm looking out. Where is the kingdom of God showing up? And isn't it interesting that he finally takes action, finally recognizes, yes, this is the kingdom of God when Jesus dies on the cross. That's the moment when Joseph says, this is the kingdom of God. Just like the centurion who watched Jesus die says, surely this man was the son of God. Jesus says in John 12, when I am lifted up, I will call all men to myself. I will draw all men to myself. It's happening now. The centurion is the first. Joseph's the second. Jew and Gentile are coming to the kingdom. May we also be seekers of the kingdom of God. Remember, Mark is describing this clash of kingdoms. Well, here's the clash in action. The Sanhedrin versus Joseph watching for the kingdom. The other members of the council are holding on to the kingdoms of this world. And I just want to suggest to you, I am saddened and ashamed that I see so many evangelical leaders doing the same thing. Giving into fear and wanting to hold on to cultural power in this election cycle. Men and women that I've respected are compromising with the kingdoms of this world in hopes of power and cultural influence rather than continuing to seek the kingdom of God. Folks like James Dobson, David Jeremiah, Deborah Fikes, and Eric Metaxas, they have given up looking for the kingdom of God. I'm disappointed. I'm ashamed of them. Instead of seeking after these presidential candidates who have questionable moral character, I would hope they would be endorsing and promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ, who died for them and rose again to be Lord over all the earth. Instead of seeking America's greatness, I would hope they would seek the kingdom of God, which is completely upside down to the kingdoms of this world. Instead of those leaders, I invite you to listen to a Christian leader like Russell Moore. Write his name down, Russell Moore, who says, You and I are not on the wrong side of history. The worst thing that could happen to us has already happened. We were crucified with Christ outside of Jerusalem. But the best thing that could happen to us has happened too. That's not a Supreme Court victory. That is walking out of a hole in the ground in Jerusalem and being seated at the right hand of God. If we truly believe that, we can patiently bear with those who disagree with us. The gospel that we preserve is not meant to end with us. It's meant to go forward. If we recognize that and know that, we work for the common good, we work for human flourishing and all good things, but we hold them with a certain looseness because we know that the United States of America is temporary, but the gospel of Jesus Christ goes on forever. Amen. This is the kind of thing I think Mark is talking about when he says that Joseph was seeking after the kingdom of God. Joseph is on the lookout to follow God rather than the power structures in place because those structures, he knows, are coming to an end. 
Western values, the American dream, the United States of America, my business, my home, my little kingdoms, we hold them loosely. These things are temporary. The gospel of our crucified and risen Lord who has defeated sin and death and will come again to rule over all creation, that is eternal. If you celebrate America's Independence Day tomorrow, remember America is not an eternal kingdom. It will not last forever. It will not bring you life. Joseph has been seeking the kingdom of God. One last note. Joseph, by touching Jesus' body, makes himself unclean for Sabbath and for the Passover. He also puts himself in a very strange position to Pilate and the council. Joseph is beginning to understand what it means to die to self in order to take up his cross and follow Jesus. Joseph is beginning to know what it means to suffer or at least face suffering for the sake of the gospel. But I want to note something else. He becomes unclean by touching Jesus' body, ritually unclean. But I want to suggest to you, Jesus does not become unclean by touching what is unclean. Jesus cleanses. In the same way, Joseph, I guarantee it, did not become unclean by touching Jesus' body. Joseph became clean in a way he had never been clean before, by serving the body of Christ. By caring for Jesus' body, Joseph is becoming clean, able to enter Sabbath rest for the first time, really. He's not going to miss out on God's saving work at Passover. Instead, he is fully and actively engaged, participating in God's saving work at Passover by serving this dead Passover lamb. Joseph is not unclean. For the first time, Joseph is whole, healed, redeemed, and totally clean before God. Jesus heals and cleanses what he touches. You touch this dead body, you become clean. You enter this death, you are healed. You participate in dying with this dying man, and you have life. We enter into his death as well. By baptism, when we are buried into his death and raised again to new life. By the Lord's Supper, when we ingest Christ's body given for us and Christ's blood shed for us. And as Paul says, when we suffer with Christ, as his disciples did. As Paul tells us in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. To share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. In baptism, in the Lord's Supper, when we suffer with Christ, we are healed by touching and entering into the crucified body of Christ. In conclusion, Jesus has died. He has taken on life, including death. And in doing that, he redeemed all human life. Jesus defeats death. Death is no longer an enemy of God. And the deaths of God's beloved saints are weapons against evil and sin. Our deaths are nothing to fear. Oh, death, where is your victory? And so we walk as disciples of a crucified Lord. We have defeated death. We can bear witness to what Christ has done. We walk as witnesses and we can boldly walk forward with Christ, actively serving the kingdom of God. We can walk right up to death 
just as Jesus and his disciples did. Because Jesus has defeated death. If we do not need to fear death, what do we fear? Today, we take up our crosses and follow him by seeking and serving the kingdom of God rather than the kingdoms of this world, by loving the sick and dying and the undercared for, by risking shame and persecution to care for Christ's body, by small acts of kindness and grace for the least and the lost, in whom we receive and serve our crucified Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at what you have done. You made the world by speaking. You seek after and love your enemies. You pursue us despite ourselves. And to win us back, you sent your son to defeat sin and death. Jesus, we are amazed by you. Your love for us astounds us and makes us want to sing. On the cross, you won a mighty victory. We praise you. Holy Spirit, you are good to us making us new, drawing us into Jesus' victory over sin and death. You have overcome our fear of death. Continue to make us bold followers of our crucified Lord. We love you, Father, Son, and Spirit. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.